Welcome to episode five of the EQI podcast, The Smart Money. I'm Vanessa Howard, and today we're going to focus on SIPs, or to give them their full name, the Self-Invested Personal Pension. And so when it came to finding a guest, there really was only one person I knew I wanted to speak to, and that is John Murray. Hello, John. Hi. Thank you very much for joining us today. In fact, I was delighted because um, although you are John Murray, you're also known as Mr. Sip. I'm sure you <laughs> heard that before. Um, that's an accolade because I think it's fair to say that if you're going to talk to anyone about this particular product, you're the man to go and reach out to. You've, you're a wealth of information. So I am going to be picking your brains here today because as much as I've enjoyed finding out more about Sips, I think it's fair to say that there is some complexities. There is a degree of controversy even perhaps around it seems to be a product that very much suits some people possibly won't suit others so um i'm glad that you're here um and as you pointed out to me they're not new necessarily so they're about 30 years old but i'm going to take you further back in time than that even i'm going to take you back to 1970 um as i've read about you before stepping into sun life's offices at cheapside in the city of London. So, I mean, that's quite an extraordinarily long career. So what, what attracted you first and foremost to working in financial services? Um, I guess uh, it was just a case. I was fresh out of university. I'd done a maths and statistics degree. And um, somebody told me that if you wanted to earn a lot of money, um, train as an actuary. Um, so that's how I got to Sun Life. I um, was uh, in the fortunate position of having, I think, actually about six different offers. So, and I just plucked one name out of out of uh, the hat. It was Sun Life, and so I turned up there to train as an actuary. Um, the actuarial side of my career disappeared a long, long time ago, um, and I'm what would be called um, a, a sort of lapsed actuary, or more correctly, a non-practicing actuary. Um, but uh, the actual disciplines that you learn um, are actually quite useful um, outside of pure actuarial work. And uh, so the training wasn't wasted. No. But uh, I, don't, I don't really use that. And I haven't used um, any of it for many years. Okay. So that was you sort of starting perhaps, well, very much a kind of a technical understanding Mm. Um, but I also read something that you wrote, which I thought was really interesting, was then back then in 1970s, if you were looking at a pension, um, you you had a kind of a cut everything to, that you needed to know about pensions filled about 100 pages. Yeah, I've got a book um, still in my bookcase, which was written actually by another actuary. Um, in 1970, there was a new tax code of approval um, introduced. And uh, th that book actually summarised all the tax legislation um, that applied to pension schemes in 1970 in about 100 pages. Um, if you try to do that today, um, I think you'd probably need maybe 100, perhaps even 1,000 uh, books of that size to uh, actually encompass it all. I mean, it has just grown like topsy. Um, and it's, I, I, I think it's a big, big issue. So I think you're right in hinting to there is a degree of complexity. Everybody understands retirement. Everybody understands that they need to save and put money aside for the type of retirement that they want. But when it comes to looking at what pension product might be right for you, people today on average apparently have about 11 jobs um, during the course of their career. So you're likely to pick up company pensions. 
There's the state pension, of course, that's separate. You've now got the auto enrollment and then you've got personal pensions. So when it comes to thinking, right, I'm probably going to be retired for about 20 years. I've got to create an income for myself. Where do I even start? I was wondering if you could help us saying in that sort of mosaic universe of pension products, yeah. where does the SIP fit? Well, it um, it fits at the end, if you like, of the personal pension range. Because if you go back to the history of SIPs, um, they started 30 years ago, just over, um, introduced in 1989 by Nigel Lawson. Um, the year before, the government had introduced personal pensions. And Nigel Lawson, in, in his budget speech, basically said he just wanted to give people more choice on investments and more control of their investments than applied under a normal or standard personal pension. And you have to remember at that time, almost all personal pensions were provided by insurance companies. And there were at the time probably over 100 insurance companies, whereas today we're down probably to 10 or 12 that are active in um, providing pensions. Um, most of those insurance companies only allowed you to invest in their own funds. So there was a very limited uh, choice. And that was the background to SIPs. They weren't actually called SIPs. And in fact, the SIPs, the name SIP, didn't really come about until the early 90s. And there was quite a, a discussion um, in the industry at the time as to what they should be called. And uh, there was uh, an alternative view was that they should be called self-administered personal pensions um, as opposed to self-invested personal pensions. But anyway, SIPs uh, came out on top of SAPs and uh, the SIP label sort of stuck. Um, that was the start in 1989, uh, 1990. The first SIP product was launched in 1990. So this year it sees 30 years of SIPs. And so was it, was it something that you identified pretty much at the outset, oh, this is a breakthrough, this is very different? Uh, strangely enough, um, my background actually, going back to my days at Sun Life, was in uh, something called small self-administered schemes, uh, which is, without getting too technical, it's the, the sort of occupational uh, or workplace pension equivalent of a SIP. It allowed freedom of choice on the investment side. But they were um, launched in 1980s and Sun Life was one of the first players in that market and I was heavily involved in that. So I'd always seen the attraction of being able to invest more widely with your pension. And when I moved companies and I ended up working at a company which eventually became uh, Winterter, um, we were one of the first to look at the opportunities linked to um, this new freedom. And in fact, we'd actually been working on something similar um, before Nigel Lawson launched it. So we were in a pretty good position. So we launched, um, it's, I, I'm not sure who was actually first um, to the starting line. There was some, di some dispute over that, but we were there or thereabouts. And uh, yeah, so we plugged the SIP, me SIP message for, for for that whole decade, really, uh, uh, during the 90s. And it was hard work because 
for a lot of people, and, and particularly the financial advisory market, was a very different place to where it is today. Uh, most financial advisors didn't want to know, um, to be quite honest. And if you look at the, the growth of SIPs, you'll see that even at the end of that decade, as we moved into 2000, 2001, there were probably only a, somewhere between fifty and 100,000 SIPs, whereas today we're up near a 3 million. Um, so you can break the development down of, of SIP market almost down into three phases. There's that first phase, the first 10 years, and the only real significant development, which I'm sure is a subject we'll come back to, was the, um, the launch of income drawdown in 1995. Um, very different from what we've got today, but that was um, the first opportunity for individuals not to buy, have to buy an annuity when they came to retirement. Um, and then the second stage would have been the 2000 to, say, 2010, uh, where the most significant development was in 2006, when the um, revenue decided to, and Treasury introduced what they call pension simplification. Uh, some of some people will will ref, uh, will know a day as it was called. It was massive, um, and it really did away. Uh, particularly on the investment side, with any restrictions that had applied on, on where you could invest. And that, because of the linked changes, uh, quite unbelievable when you look back at it now, but in 2006, you could put in over £200,000 and get full tax relief on, on your contribution, and you had a lifetime allowance of £1.8 Um that what lifetime allowance has been whistled mm. away and now is just over 1 million, about 1.07 million. And annual contribution, depending on your circumstances, can be now as low as £4,000 a year for many people, maybe 40000 But literally, um, in that period, first five years post-simplification, you could actually invest uh, using some... Um, Tax, tax relief and 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 uh, backtracking. You could, in theory, put in half a million in a, in a year and get full tax relief at your highest rate of um, tax. So, it it meant a huge surge in investment in pensions, uh, particularly from higher earners, okay. which gave a huge spike to the development of the SIP market, along with. The development of investment platforms, uh, which are obviously now are very dominant, particularly in the advisor marketplace, but also we saw the likes of companies like Hargreaves, Lansdowne, and uh, people like that come to the market and launch SIPs. So those two factors combined led to a big surge. And then the third stage is linked to 2014-15 with the introduction of pension freedoms, which uh, has given another huge boost to the SIP market. Okay, so it's quite it's quite a strange evolution in some ways. So there seemed to be a very slow burn, and then some real boosts. If I'm being generous to the government, it does seem like they are trying to find ways for people to take more control of what will happen in their retirement. But people are still. I've got to be honest. I mean, I, I, I you know many people I speak to, I would say the majority of them, they certainly have pensions. They don't know how much they've got in the pension pots. They kind of just let them tick over in the background somewhere, either through advisors or through companies. So I think there's possibly still, do you think it's fair to say there's still a point of resistance because people think something like a SIP is too complex or it's too daunting? When you talk to people, what, what do you hear? 
I think it's changed over the years. I think SIPs have become uh, more available and have a now appeal perhaps to a certain, a, a different type of investor to the type of investor who was involved in the SIPs in the early days. In those days, it tended to be people either who were real experts in the investment field or had a particular reason for using a SIP. Quite often it would be if they had um, commercial premises connected with their business. So barristers, accountants, people like that took advantage of it. The The world now is very different. At one time, um, and if you were at sort of dinner or whatever, and you talk to people about your pension, not that that's a, a, a norm, but if that did crop up, I think if you'd said you had a SIP, people would look at you and wonder what you were talking mm. about. I, th I think today, actually, it, it possibly depends um, who you go to dinner with, but <laughs> I, 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 I think you'd find it's... Um, people are more more aware but unfortunately what has happened um particularly reason recently is that the awareness has come about not necessarily because of all the positive aspects of sips but to some extent uh, it's the negative as aspects because the freedoms uh, on investments that were introduced in 2006 unfortunately led to a growth in scams and uh, and frauds and there have been a sizable number of individuals who've been deprived of their pension as a result of the activities of those individuals it it's still going on not to the same extent but the, the concerns are still there and are very active um, right now government etc uh, the regulator all still very concerned about ways of preventing this I think that's a really important point and one we should not shy away from I mean that they're self-invested is an important part of that SI and SIPs because the whole uh, design of the product is to keep people, to put them in the driving seat, let's say. But like with any vehicle, if you're not paying enough attention, this is a dangerous point. You could end up in a ditch. It does keep, give people more control. Now, I know that we picked up on something earlier when we had a chance to speak, which is to say that you can, in fact, have an advisor on your SIP as well. It's not as if you necessarily need to be, you're just alone in the desert, as it were. You can have an advisor to go on your SIP and work along with them, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, um, the um, certainly in the early days of SIPs, the vast majority of SIPs would have been set up uh, through a financial advisory firm. Um, that's changed um, over, over the years. Uh, and today I would estimate that probably about 30% of SIPs are now operated on a non-advised basis. But so the majority still, there will still be an advisor in there. There may in fact even be more than one advisor. You might have somebody um, that you use for your financial advice and you might use somebody else for the investment advice, a discretionary manager or someone like that. There are different models. Okay. Um, but I'd, the two things I, I would say is you need to be comfortable uh, if you are thinking of um, investing in a SIP and running it yourself. You there's no point in putting yourself under stress as a result of that. So you need to be comfortable. Uh, you need to have the time um, because it is something that requires time and, 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 uh, and attention. And and you need to be careful um, 
particularly on the investment side. And the old adage, you don't get out for now, um, is so true because most of the investment scams that have occurred have been as a result of people putting out ridiculously large investment return projections, which if you looked at them, you would never, ever consider in the normal course of events. And it is in a way very surprising and and very sad that people are prepared to gamble with their pension in a way that they probably wouldn't be prepared to do on a day-to-day basis. So, um, there are words of caution, but having said all that, there are a lot of positives uh, uh, around the, the fact that you have got this choice. Um, and if you are that way inclined, then I think it's a brilliant way of building a pension and indeed um, seeing it through into retirement when perhaps you have got a little bit more time. That's true. So if we start to look at a little bit more about how the product, I mean, it, it's a wrapper, isn't mm. it, essentially? It is. And and so you get the same tax advantages as you would with other personal pensions. And those can be incredibly important if you're going to build over the long term. And it's possibly it's probably smart of any investment product, but particularly when you start to look at a pension to kind of go, this is very much a get rich slow scheme, (laughs) not a get rich quick scheme. Yeah, no, I mean, pensions are long term. Um, clearly, it depends when you set the SIP up. There are plenty of people who don't actually set a SIP up until into their 50s or even in the run up to re- retirement. Um, and going back to the point you were making um, a little while ago about the fact that many individuals now have multiple pension entitlements, that's a common reason why people do actually uh, go for a SIP or are advised to take out a SIP. Um, because with these legacy pensions, um, there are issues around the investments on um, performance of those legacy pensions, and there are also concerns about charges. And also, actually, it's a whole lot easier if you consolidate all those pensions um, into one pot, which would be the SIP, the SIP, SIP wrapper. But you do need to be careful, and we we know, for example, that. Any transfers from a defined benefit scheme or final salary scheme are fraught with issues and you need, well, you, you basically need to take advice, have to take advice on um, those those types of transfers. Putting those to one side, um, there are a lot of uh, individuals who will have um, several legacy pensions um, and that will become more transparent, actually, when the pensions dashboard finally sees the light of day, which is probably another three or four years away, unfortunately. But I think that will actually, it's quite interesting. There's been a boost to SIPs every sort of 10 years, mm-hmm. 95, 2006, 2015. Dashboard 2024, 2025 might well be another boost to, to SIPs. So tell um, me because a little bit people... more about the dashboard. I wish I could. Um, <laughs> I, uh, basically, the, it, it, it's going to it be um, driven by the government, but there will be more than one uh, dashboard um, a- allowed. And that will actually provide uh, the means for you and your advisor to actually access all your pensions in, in terms of knowing what the value of those pensions is. Um, so... It will be um, a bit like your online banking, mm. I, I, I guess, in a way. Not not the transactional side, but in terms of the visibility. Yeah. And there are some apps and what have you out in the market today where you can, aside from your pension, your other investments, you can see all of those uh, through your, through an app 
um, Money Hub and, 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 and other um, devices like that. So the dashboard will increase visibility. And I, I think that visibility, when people see that they've got seven or eight pensions all worth maybe five, ten thousand pounds, they might think, well, what's the why do I need seven or eight of these? Um, why not have one? And that's where the SIP might might come into yeah. play. And, and pay one set of charges in that way rather Indeed. than... Indeed. Well, a, a, absolutely right. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's interesting because we are sort of straddling. We're still half paper-based. I think, you know, we still get those annual paper statements sent out, um, yeah. which doesn't help again with that sense of, oh, that's sort of just something happening in the background versus people are now more and more inclined to want to I, some of my pensions are i can see and monitor digitally and and it's a it's a far more involved way of, of understanding what's happening oh absolutely and and some of the new new players in in but both the sip market and the more traditional sort of personal pension market are, are very switched on digit digitally um it was quite interesting uh, one of the other things i do these days is share a, um, a sort of network which is not a, a network in the financial advisory sense but it's just a meeting place for pensions sort of professionals and, and, and what have you and we had a session we're all virtual at the moment obviously and we had a session a couple of weeks ago which was about dragging pensions out of the stone age digitally and and that's a bit harsh uh, and because there are there are a lot of developments going on, but the legacy issues for a lot of the traditional providers are, are really enormous. Mm. And as you say, there is still far far too much um, paper around. Some of that is driven actually by the regulator. Okay. Um, and uh, it would be good if and and there is activity ha ha happening there in terms of providing simplified annu annual statements and what have you. So I think we things will get better, mm. but it's not going to happen overnight. Okay. So going back to, um, am I the type of person who would suit a SIP? I mean, I can see just from my reading, there are, there, let's just say that you're self-employed or you're a company director. You can actually put, the company can pay contributions into your SIP, which uh, the problem with a lot of people who face, who are self-employed or freelance, et cetera, and that's, that's increasing numbers these days, is that yeah. you don't have that, those company contributions. So you have to start thinking about yourself as creating your own contributions. So in that way, a SIP can be very practical, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and there is no one way or one type of person for whom a SIP is, is, is appropriate. As you say, self-employed um, certainly are a group of individuals that need to address their pension saving, most, most certainly. Um, and some of those undoubtedly would find a SIP suitable. Um, there are others for whom perhaps there is a particular investment um, that they're interested in. So company directors, etc., might be interested in the commercial property type um, investments. And then there will be a lot of others who might, uh, for one reason or another, for example, might have a legacy pension, which might be a final salary pension. Um, but might be in a position that they can contribute and uh, continue to contribute in addition. Um, and they could do that as a SIP in, in, in addition to their defined benefit mm -hmm. pension or indeed in, in addition to their uh, workplace scheme. Or in some cases, the more perhaps enlightened um, uh, employers uh, will give 
their employees um, a, a degree of choice and will be prepared to say, well, we'll contribute mm-hmm. um, and you can find your own pension provider, um, we'll pay X percent and you you can top top that up. So there are a number of different different models. And then, of course, you've also got, as we were just talking about, the individuals who might do that, but have also got legacy pension. And, and at the same time as starting con- contributing, they will actually um, consolidate some or all of those past pensions. So they've got a pot there, which might actually mean that the impact of charges is is reduced depending on how those charges are, are, are levied. Mm. A lot of SIPs still have flat charges. And obviously that means the larger the pot, the less the impact of charges. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, mm. So thinking now about, so there's your wrapper, there's your SIP, but then you have to start making decisions about what to put in it. Um, and as we picked up previously, there, there are there are limitations on some SIPs. So when we were talking about how did you arrive at the pig, a figure of like two and a half people, million people having SIPs, you pointed out to me quite rightly, actually, there's no sort of central place where you can actually see who has a SIP. It is a bit of a yeah. mixed picture, a bit of a confused picture because there are differences. Yeah. I mean, uh, A, there is, you know, there is no one source of data. Um, there's also no one definition of a SIP Um, and so one has to be careful but I I think these days you can break the SIP uh, market down into broadly into two types of SIP either a SIP which is a simplified SIP or a streamlined SIP where there will be a range of investments the more traditional types investment unit trusts etc funds equities and what have you most of those will be run on platforms investment platforms available to um, either through advisors or or through individuals and that I would guess now makes up about by assets anyway somewhere around 85 percent of total assets so if you say the sit market today is somewhere around 350 billion um, the bulk of that certainly 300 billion or so will be through platforms uh, by and large then you've got the uh, the remainder which a lot of which will be legacy but um, commercial property um, type investments and other investments, non-standard investments as they're sort of correctly um, termed. Um, and that's the sort of complex SIP and end, end, end of the market. So you've got those two types of SIP. And, and I would say for the vast majority of individuals, it's the streamlined um, SIP that is really of, of, of interest. And in fact, I'd go so far as to say, unless you're a sort of a sophisticated investor and really know what you're doing, to go outside of those, that the investment options through a streamlined SIP um, is probably something that you don't really want to en- entertain. So in that way, much as you're looking at, uh, at ISA investments as a yeah. wrapper, um, you can, you should that funds is one place to start, for example. Um, p- particularly, you can look at the level of risk that you'd be interested in, the kind of time frame that you've got in mind. I mean, it, it, you can take on more risk, I think it's fair to say, if you're in your 30s as opposed to in your 50s. Yeah, I mean, I'm no investment expert mm. and I'm not a financial advisor, but I mean, generally that that, that will be the case. Uh, one, one area that we haven't actually 
touched on, which I think is of growing importance, is the whole um, move towards sustainable investments, uh, ESG mm -hmm. type, type investments. And there's no doubt um, from evidence that I've seen and, and discussions I've been involved in that particularly at the younger end of the spectrum, um, not not just the younger end, but particularly the younger, there is real interest in having more of a say and more knowledge about where my investments are actually going, going my mm. contributions, where are they being invested? And I do see that actually as another area where there will be um, a, a lot of interest and, and, and growth, particularly with everything else that's going on mm. around climate change, et cetera. That could be a very huge area of development in the um, in the SIP market and uh, um, so I think, you know, in, if one's looking at investments, there might be some individuals who have a particular need or desire to invest in cer certain areas, which might not necessarily be the obvious place if you were looking at it purely from a risk point point of view. The other point to make, I guess, is that the the average age of a, a SIP investor at the moment is somewhere in the 50s. Mm. Um it is slightly reducing, but it is still very much skewed to the end of the work, uh, working life. Um, and that's understandable, fully understandable, given the demands that are placed on individuals, um, you know, at, at the other end of the spectrum when mm. you're in the uh, 20s and 30s. And clearly there, there are other demands and, and, and pressures which might not allow you um, many individuals to invest at all or only able to invest a relatively small amount into pensions at, at, at that time. That's fair. A couple of things I want to pick up on there. You're right, because for, for we know from our younger investors, they're far more interested in looking at um, a lifetime SIP in order to be able to get onto yep. the housing market and then possibly put money aside for retirement through that. Um, um, EQI does have ESG ratings, so you can look at funds. And if that is important to you, then you can get an understanding, precisely as you say, as to uh, what's driving these funds in terms of sustainability, how they might treat a workforce, et cetera, and that, you know, they're being responsible players in the planet. Um, so that's very important. And I think you're right. Your instincts are right there. I know from when I talk to my children, that's one of the first things that they are concerned about, even though they're baby investors so far. You know, they're just, they've got those lifetime ices. But moving yeah. forwards, that's certainly not going to go away. Yeah, there's um, an, an initiative called Make My Money Matter, um, which is, um, has uh, attracted quite a lot of attention over the last, uh, it was launched early, earlier this year. And it's very much with that, that, that audience in mind, uh, I, I think. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm convinced we will see more and more of that. That is interesting. And of course, when we keep talking about the wrappers and the type of investments that you could put in there, so you can, of course, you can choose funds, you could put stocks and shares in there. Yeah. Um, it is a greater degree of freedom than traditional personal pensions. So that's all well and good. But what, what are we actually doing here? We're actually moving to the point where we're supposed to stop working and our investments are working for us, essentially. So um, I was, uh, in which... Um, produce a survey which is always very interesting because they talk to actual retirees about the money that they do spend because that's always part of the problem is that people don't necessarily know how much they got to save how long that the retirement funds are expected to last because of course we've got no idea how long we'll be here on the planet yeah. um so the witch survey uh revealed that 
people are spending on average around just over £2,110 per month per household. So they said that breaks down to about £25,000 a year for people to be comfortable, that was. And then they've got another sort of set of figures from people who are would like to do a little bit more. So if you're looking for retirement income of around £40,000, the kind of pension pots that you need to support that are quite significant. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm going to yeah. leave the state pension out for now. But if you were hoping to have a pension of £25,000 a year, you're going to need a pot of over 260,000 is their estimate. The figure though is lower if you're using income from drawdown. So I wanted, you did touch on drawdown earlier. So I want you to uh, explain a little bit about how that works in principle. Okay, I mean, there've been several iterations of drawdown over the 25 years since I first got involved with it and uh, I mean, most of that is history and we needn't needn't worry about it. There will obviously be individuals who have been using drawdown for most, if not all of that time. Um, but the big um, game changer as far as drawdown was concerned was the introduction of pension freedoms um, some five, five years ago, George Osborne which took the whole industry by surprise. And basically that removed any requirement to buy an annuity, um, but also uh, gave people the, in, in, uh, the opportunity to take as much or as little income as they wished out of their pension at any point. Um, and that has had consequences. I, th I think the worst fears, there was an example quoted by the pension minister at the time were about um, Lamborghinis and uh, buying a Lamborghini when, with your retirement fund. I'm not aware of anyone that's actually done that, but I'm sure there are people who've used their pension pot, for example, to pay off a mortgage or, or anything like that, which may make a, a lot of sense. Um, so just going back to pension freedoms, that you, you basically there were three options. There was what's called flexi-access drawdown, which is you can take as much or as little whenever you like, subject perhaps to what your provider will allow. We'll come back to that. Then there's what's known as capped drawdown, which is legacy, really. Um, don't need really to worry too much about that. There are income limits, though, that are predetermined, um, which broadly mean you can only take out roughly what you would be able to secure as an annuity e each year. Um, the significance of that is that if you were in drawdown prior to pension freedoms, that allows you a higher level of contribution if you wish wish to carry on contributing um, now. Whereas if you actually are using flexi access drawdown and want to continue contributing, you can only uh, put in I think it's four thousand pounds a year now. Whereas with cap drawdown, if you're complying with those limits then it's 40,000 so it's just a point to bear in mind and then there's a very strange um, sort of third leg of this which I always struggle with it is I've written it down actually it's uncrystallized funds pension lump sum uh, UFPLS mm. and that I don't think we want to get into too much detail <laughs> on that because I'll tie myself up in knots. But that basically allows you to take some of what would be your tax-free cash 
on a reg regular basis and use that for in in income. But the main area of attention is the is the flexi access drawdown, where you can, as I said, take as much or as little as you want um, year by year. Clearly, you have to be conscious that it's taxable, mm. and and you don't want to walk into a tax trap of actually taking income and paying a rate of tax at the highest mm. rate if, if if you're not comfortable at, at doing that um but um yeah so you've got got three options and i think if you come on to the sort of other side what what do people need to think about well there are, i think there are a number of areas and i i personally think if if you're uncomfortable at all with this this is where you do need advice mm. um but i think um you've got a range of different sort of op options there are some people who may look to use drawdown uh, the flexi drawdown for a limited period and maybe five five ten years and then will be happy moving into a more secure environment perhaps by uh, through purchasing an annuity there'll be others where they basically want the fle flexibility of being able to vary their income year 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 to year and we know that uh, traditionally uh, retirees there is this sort of u-shaped mm. curve where you spend in the first five years then consolidate and then you've at the end of life there's long-term care considerations so again having that flexibility to adjust your income um can uh, can be quite attractive in that sense um i think there are also issues to think about you mentioned sort of longevity and what have you and and clearly that's the big big unknown mm. one of the biggest fears i think with anyone that's got a um, drawdown um is running out of money and uh, i think um that remains a, a real concern um and managing that risk is, is quite important and i think there's more work that could be done there in terms of looking at the whole life expectancy mm. um, situation and it's not just life expectancy it's healthy life expectancy yeah. and un unhealthy life expectancy and i think more information and more awareness of what could happen not necessarily the average which is what life expectancy is but what are the extremes mm. what are the chances of living to 90 or 95 and and allowing um, for that then there's the whole area of investment volatility um and as we've seen well, in this last uh, as we've yeah. seen uh, the, the, this last year and uh, you know there are a lot of individuals that are very uncomfortable and there were lots and lots of phone calls um around march time um about with with individuals concerned about what's happening to their pension mm. and more recently of course when we saw markets move on on the announcement of the vaccine there were a lot of individuals making phone calls to try and uh, uh, either get invest further amounts <laughs> or or switch their investments so but volatility is very much a, a factor in all of this um i think also there's the whole the whole issue of long-term care and care yes. costs and that's a big question question mark over all, all of that um but perhaps more importantly um depending on the financial your your financial situation for many 
investors they will have a sip and they will have other investments yeah. and managing your pension alongside your other investments your house yeah the equity in your house all, all of that it's an area that needs a lot lot of attention and it may well be that many people do need to take some some advice on um i can that, see that. that i mean even when you just mentioned the three types of drawdown you're like this is an area where it would be helpful to get some professional advice um yeah. There seems to be, there's an opportunity, obviously, to do a bit of mix and matching. As you say, some people will have equity in houses, they'll have ISAs, they'll possibly have other pensions. But it also does point to the fact that we know that people will spend more time booking a holiday than reviewing their pensions. And I think what tends to put people off is because there's so much that's unknown. It is a bit foggy because if you had a sort of fixed figure in mind, then it's easier to aim for. But as you rightly pointed out, because basically life is unknowable then you've almost got to look to how do you build in that flexibility cash yeah. savings is important as well as you as you pointed yeah. out yeah and i mean it with with the the rules now and um and the um flexible um drawdown um it's possible to sort of build build in some buffers mm. and what have you so you it's not a case that you necessarily have to commit all your pension one way or t'other um so you could build build in a level of secure income through purchase of annuity or perhaps using gilt portfolios or, or whatever and then leave the rest of the um your your pension fund to be used as and when uh as and when necessary in a way the key to all of this is what's known as cash flow mod modeling um and that there are many sort of um tools out out there on online that's available to um investors and also most advisors would be would advising in this area would use cash flow flow modeling which sort of comes back to what you were saying about about the income levels and what have you and what are the expected income levels and you can factor that in layer in all your investments investment returns and uh, that's a very important part of the whole advice spectrum but it isn't just about um, advice that's possible for individuals to do that I, all i would say is it is um, potentially quite time consuming so mm. you need to be prepared but equally perhaps people who've been working and are now not working retired or whatever they do potentially have a bit more time mm -hmm. to, to 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 do all of this yeah. so it, it's very much horses for courses what you're comfortable with at the end of the day absolutely um, and then you get into actually on just on drawdown the other factor in all of this well okay uh i want to do drawdown do i stick if, if I've already got a personal pension or a SIP, do I stick with the SIP that I've used up to now? What are they like sort of for drawdown and what options do they have and what have you? And that's a whole other ball game. And how expensive are they relative to other okay. providers that are out there? So there's a good case for saying that at that point, one should look to see whether in fact it might be advisable to move and it was an area that the regulator looked at um quite in quite a lot of detail um when they were doing what was called the retirement outcomes review and uh, they showed there that it was a surprisingly small number of individuals um who actually transferred 
at the point at which they were moving in, in, into drawdown. And they were concerned about that, okay. um, the lack of switching and lack of re review. Their concern being that the costs in drawdown might be disproportionately high because right. of the uh, charging structure of the, the, the current provider. So that's another area that you need to look into if you're thinking of, move, well, when you're ready to move into drawdown. That's a really important point because I think we do know that you're 17 times more likely to look at change your car insurance and look at that annually than you are to, to pay attention to what's happening to your pensions. Yeah. So that's a really key point. Um, now, I wanted to talk quickly about a SIP administrator because although this is you have a SIP, and we say that means pretty much you know, you're in charge, Essentially, you can't do everything yourself as a SIP. You still need to appoint, choose a SIP administrator. So what is it that they do? What do they do? Um, that's a good question. It depends on um, who you're using. But clearly, if you're using an investment platform, for example, related to a SIP, they provide the wrapper. They'll deal with all the tax relief, etc., that you're entitled to. They'll do, deal with all the investments, the investment transactions, the back office work associated with those in, in investment, the custodianship, a whole raft of back office issues. Okay. Um, so... It, you're right um, that the, the choice of a SIP provider um, or SIP administrator is, is an important decision. It's not just about, well, I want a SIP. It's, well, who do I choose? And, and again, I mean, it depends what you want and particularly what types of investment you're thinking of using. Um, in choosing a SIP a, a provider, I would say there are a few points to look at. So I would say, what's the track record of that particular provider? How long have they been sort of running SIPs? Um, doesn't necessarily mean that a new provider is necessarily going to be bad. And indeed, they might not have some of the legacy issues that we refer to. But I think I would try and um, investigate that. The technology, I think, is all important, um, particularly if you're looking at online, which I guess the majority of um, individuals would be now uh, these days so how good or bad is their technology um, their customer service link, link to that what credentials have they got have they got individual assessment of their customer experience that type mm -hmm. of thing um, the people involved um, with the business you can normally have a look and see what their experience like certainly the senior people um, what are the options on the investment side that they allow um, depending what you what what you want investment choice, um, and uh, and costs and that sounds very easy, but um, particularly on costs, actually getting to the bottom of what a co a SIP actually costs is not simple. Um, there are a whole raft of different charges. Um, some might be flat fees, some might be percentage of fund, uh, all sorts of fees. And then you'll get another set of charges normally when one moves into drawdown, okay. which is why having a look when you get to that point is so so important. But the, the comparison of charges is challenging, uh, the impact of, of charges. Um, there are obviously sources that you can go for comparison surveys and, and what have you, which are helpful. But it is an area that, again, the regulator has, has expressed some concern about um, the, the individuals are put off doing anything um, by the complexity of, of, of charges. 
And then when one comes to drawdown, the, the, the other concern, which perhaps I should have mentioned earlier, was around the, the, the high proportions of cash that are actually held um, during drawdown. Uh, there are strategic reasons why one might want to hold cash for a short term, but uh, the regulator and um, investigations, what have you, showed a, a staggeringly high proportion of cash being held over 30% um, by a lot of in, in individuals, and in many cases, the whole fund invested in cash, um, which, you know, long term just doesn't doesn't make any mm. any sense um so there are other issues there but then you get into well what's the charge for holding cash for example okay. so um you know so there it, it, it's a complicated area and it, again it may be an area where um if it's not comfortable to make the comparisons or not comfortable with uh your un un understanding um then speak to an advisor okay but I, I can see what the appeal of drawdown would be, because going back to those which figures again, if you wanted to have an income of £40,000 a year, you're going to need an uh, this via an annuity, I should say. You're going to need a pension pot of close to three quarters of a million. Well, their suggestion is that for people with uh, who want the same income, £40,000 a year, but who are using drawdown, that's closer to 456000 so the, the, the gap, if you want an annuity, you're going to need to have a lot more in your pot. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that, there will be some assumptions underlying um, those, those figures, <laughs> uh, and particularly on the drawdown assumptions. Um, there will be assumptions about investment returns. Mm. Um, and so one would needs to look at look at those quite, quite closely. I, I personally think it comes back to comfort actually what do you feel comfortable mm. with are, are you actually prepared to take some of the risks that we talked about earlier the mm -hmm. investment volatility are you prepared to see 30 percent wiped off your uh, pension fund overnight is that going to stop you sleeping at yeah. night that type of thing with an annuity all those problems sort of dis dis disappear but equally there's a, i think a strong case why one might look at um, either the partial annuitization, so convert a small part of your fund to give you a, a guaranteed level of income and retain the rest, or defer the, the purchase of annuity to the point at which you basically no longer want to have to worry about um, the, um, the drawdown sort of yeah. issues and what have you. And it might be, therefore, you put it off five or ten, ten years. Putting it, it, off an annuity does make sense because as somebody pointed out to me it's not really don't think about it as life insurance anymore it's kind of death insurance so the older you are the more likely you, you get a better uh, annuity yeah i mean rates obviously reflect um longevity expectation of life so the older you are you're not going to live as long mm. um, so 10 years down the road um you're not going to live for an extra 10 years that's that's unfortunately uh, that's life but yes you will annuity rates obviously um sort of reflect that as they do um other sort of health health mm. issues and what have you so you know if you've got 
serious health issues, then obviously impaired annuities are a, 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 a possibility yeah. and will give you a better, better annuity um, out, outcome. We're not so here today to say you should take up smoking and skydiving at 60, though. We're not. <laughs> no, no. Not, re- not recommended, I don't think. No. <laughs> now, I know that you have a sip because I asked you. Um, yeah. I want to ask you what you what do you enjoy about it? I mean, we've talked about a lot of serious things and we're right to. But, but are there other aspects as well that you, you enjoy about having a sip? Um, I'll, I'll be honest, my sip now is quite small um, because I'm at the time of life where actually the areas we've been talking about are very relevant. I have, I'm in the fortunate position that I have a reasonably good defined benefit pension. Um, so I sort of see my sip as very much the sip on the side or the top, top up. And therefore, that's a source of um, funding. Um, for all all sorts of things, so I use it almost like a sep- an, another bank account, but just um, obviously conscious of the tax in, in, in implications. So one needs to be careful. I'm not in a position that I can contribute anymore because I've taken income from a flexi drawdown. Actually, my wife has a sip as well. She's in cap drawdown, um, and so she is in a position where she can continue to contribute if um, if she wants. So yeah, I mean, uh, I I. Um, obviously understand I, I like to think the issues uh, I don't see myself as an investment expert and to be quite honest I, I don't have the time as I'm still working um, to actually ru- uh, look after the investment side uh, myself so I do use a, a financial advisor to do that part part for me that works well I can go online and, and uh, any any time day or night and see how much my sip is worth um or isn't worth um <laughs> and uh, uh i'm not in a position where i can transact online um and in fact i wouldn't want to do that without consulting an okay. advisor but that's my choice mm-hmm. um other people um you know people's similar positions to me are quite comfortable to do that um as i say it does come back to sip gives you that um that element of choice really indeed and we, we do know that eqi has uh sip millionaires so we know that it's it is a vehicle that if you are doing the right things you are putting in the time can work very well yeah 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 absolutely i mean just mentioning that you do need obviously to be careful of the lifetime allowance um talking about sip millionaires i mean there are people who've got what's called protection so they will be able to take rather more than the 1.07 million that I was talking about. It could be 1.5 million or it might be one, even 1.8 million. But there is a point above which it becomes tax-wise not really very sensible to keep your um, keep your money in, 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 in the set. Um, but, uh, you know, for people starting out, out today, certainly I, I think the tax you know the fact that the tax reliefs are still there um, for now. Anyway, um, we may we may well see um, some changes certainly on higher rate mm. relief. I think um, um, so. Maybe now's the time to start. Yeah, maybe now the time. The time. Sorry, the dog has just entered the room, so we'll be editing that right out. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't barked. No. No. Oh, do we? <laughs> Um, yeah, so maybe now is the time to start. I think one thing that I like about EQI is they put the information out there and they say, we just want people to not rule anything out. Find out, test it out for yourself. I don't mean the product. I mean, test out the thinking, all the information yep. around it, 
Think about your long-term plans. Think about your attitude to risks and, and decide whether this could be something for you. So, I mean, when you mentioned those dinner parties you go to, we can't go to them at the moment, but uh, no, you, you, you would still encourage people to think about SIPs? Oh, I, I, absolutely. And I mean, um, I mentioned earlier on about the growth in interest in um, ESG and sustainable in, in investments and uh, also mentioned this network that I'm involved in. And we had a really interesting uh, talk a few months ago when we were able to meet rather than virtually uh, from a young lady um, whose company had done quite a lot of research with younger individuals. And actually there was some video footage of her interviewing uh, individuals as they came out. I think it was King's Cross Station and asking them about their pension. It was really staggering how many people said they would be, it would make such a difference to them if they firstly knew where they're a pension was invested and secondly if they could actually take more um, a more active role in directing where some or all of those investments might might be so i do think as i said earlier that this is an area where we're going to see some quite significant movement over the next few few years great and while those pension benefits in terms of tax are still there maybe consider yeah yeah i mean who who knows mm. i mean clearly the chancellor's got a lot of um, problems um, yeah, facing him in on. terms of tax, tax, tax revenues <laughs> yes. yeah and um, um, who, who, who knows but they're there for now mm. um, and uh, one would like to think certainly that uh, they may tweak the tax rates for higher uh, uh, high earners and what have you but for most people it's still putting putting some money away for a rainy day if you can afford it um, is is worth doing you can still get that money at the moment at 55. Um, it will go up to 57 uh, before too long. But, I mean, that still gives a lot of people the prospect of 40 years. And that's something to think mm. about. If you take your money at 55, you're probably going to end up in retirement, in inverted commas, for as long as you've been working. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, putting some money away now um, makes a whole lot of sense if you can afford it. Absolutely. John, thank you very much. I do feel like I know Pleasure. a lot more now. I, in a way, I kind of know more and then I know I need to find out even more. But uh, that's not a bad place to be. So I want to thank you very no, much absolutely. for joining us today. And uh, great pleasure. Thank you. And I'm, I'm hoping, I did see a couple of other things that you've written that we might actually call you back in as well to talk about some other things. Okay, yeah. Any <laughs> anytime. Mind. I've enjoyed it. Fantastic. Now I've got... Now I've got the technology sorted. So. <laughs> That's brilliant. We're very much, we're distanced yeah. by counties, not just by a couple of feet today. In, indeed. Thank you yeah. so much for your time. Really nice. Take nice care. to meet you. Thank yeah. you, John. Speak again. Bye. Yeah. Bye. The views expressed in the smart money are personal opinions and not advice or recommendations from EQI. The value of investments can fall as well as rise. Any income from this is not guaranteed and you may get back less than you invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. EQI is a trading name of Equinity Financial Services Limited. Equinity Financial Services Limited does not provide financial advice. If you are in any doubt as to the risk or suitability of an investment or product, you should seek advice from an independent financial advisor.